Remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning as we return now to the Gospel of St. Mark. Let us read uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look at the conclusion, verses 49 and 50. The Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And then we look down at verses 59, I'm sorry, verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, For everyone who will be seasoned with, with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if it has lost its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Expounding the Gospel of Mark, we've identified this as straight talk about Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark speaks to us straightly. He writes straight and direct to us about who Jesus Christ is. And what I've tried to do is show that each chapter has a theme relating to the unequivocal claims of Jesus and the Scripture witness to the Christian Gospel of the new covenant, identifying the coming of the kingdom of God and of heaven. As a matter of fact, uh, Mark writes, Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So as we look at chapter 1, the gospel beginning, Jesus Christ being uniquely son of God is the source of the gospel. Now saying that, we also uh, want to uh, note that while Jesus is more than the gospel, we're not... Uh, in uh, speaking in reductionistic terms here, Jesus is more than the gospel, but, but he is the source of the gospel. He's the meaning of the gospel, where it originates, with the person and the work of who Jesus is. And so on into chapter 1, we see that the gospel claims this world for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God in heaven. We must never lose sight of that. The gospel claims this world, where you and I are living in our day-to-day -day lives, from past generations and for future generations, but for you and for me, here and now, the gospel claims this world in which we live for the kingdom of God in heaven. This is the way that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Once again, we mustn't lose the scope of that. We oftentimes become very short-sighted. Sometimes we have tunnel vision. We begin to focus on, you know, Jesus for me. And yes, that's true. We walk by faith and, and, and Jesus cares for us. He tells us to cast our burdens upon him uh, that we are uh, bringing to him before the throne of grace for his intercession and his connection, the only mediator between us and our heavenly father so that we can have assurance about the things that we are facing personally, individually, are cared about with the father. But they are also something of a bigger part and connection that we have and that is that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that God is sanctifying for us in ways that we must believe by faith and that we may not see with our eyes. God is sanctifying to us our deepest distresses, our struggles, our, our, our difficulties, our uh, living by faith and not being able to see with our eyes of the flesh how things are going to work out or what's going to happen or how can this be glorifying to the kingdom of God the trouble that we're going through or the struggles or the reductions that we're facing when it seems like we're only wanting to serve God and see that expand because Jesus is the savior of the world so we need to be reminded from scripture by faith 
Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, Mark gives us a, a demonstration of this in the gospel campaign when Jesus goes into the wilderness. We identify that as Jesus' assault mission against the world, the flesh, and the devil. He didn't stumble out into the wilderness afraid of his own shadow. He was directed by the Holy Spirit like a, a special operative going in on a mission, and that mission was to assault the world, the flesh, and the devil. In the wilderness, Jesus not only confronted the devil one-on-one, -on -one, but also the fallen wild world with its death threats and flesh. Remember in the real human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was conditioned by the effects of original sin, but without the guilt of original or actual sin. So Jesus is out there in the wilderness, and Mark says, among the wild animals, the fallen wild world, in his true human nature, by which he was susceptible to the threats that were there. It wasn't a petting zoo out there. A, a, a serpent strike could have, uh, Jesus could have died to a serpent's poison. A marauding lion could have mauled Jesus in the humanity of his flesh. He was susceptible, protected by the Lord and the angels. True, that was one of the temptations of the devil uh, regarding him. But nonetheless, we need to recognize that Jesus came into this fallen, wild world as the Savior. On into chapter 1, the gospel by the presence of the kingdom of God in heaven subdues the unseen worlds. And that's going to be a theme that Mark will further develop for us and that we need to take uh, uh, be aware of and make uh, a part of our prayers and our uh, consciousness in terms of what God does unseen and how he is trustworthy. Jesus' public ministry gives a straight story about human pain and suffering by the theology of original sin as the cause of death and the life-giving power of the new covenant gospel over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Once again, these are things we mustn't lose sight of. Yes, there's pain, there's suffering, and there's death that we contend with. But we are witnesses not only to the cause for this and original sin, but the salvation and the rescue and the deliverance from it by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us then to chapter 2, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has authority on earth. And this is the unique, ultimate authority of God, God's prerogative to forgive sin. So while we read of Jesus being a healer, while we read of Jesus being a, a teacher, while we read of Jesus uh, in his compassion, all of this is secondary to his being uniquely the Son of God with authority on earth, with God's prerogative as the God-man to do what? To forgive sins. And I, again, I think that we sometimes lose sight of that in our compassion and our care and our interest and how it is that we, we see even uh, things that are evil and wrong and we wish they would be corrected. But we need to understand the source. We need to keep in mind the reality of where do these things come from and what is the real remedy. And that is the power of Jesus to forgive sins. Uh, chapter 3, as the gospel source being uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. Remember, covenantal relationships supersede the natural family of bloodlines 
This is contested and this is what was hard to understand in our day. People still try to hang on to it. That There's some kind of priority of bloodlines. There's some kind of purity, seeking a, a pure race or, or claiming some kind of pure delineation. Remember what Jesus said? God could raise up children of Abraham out of the dust and the rocks. That's what your uh, um, claim of genealogy and of a pure genealogy back to Abraham is worth. It's worth dirt when it comes to your soul salvation before God. And so we still contend with that. And we need to understand that the covenantal relationships and the family of God supersede earthly family, natural uh, family, bloodlines and bonds. Elsewhere in John, Jesus said, but as many as receive him, or John writes, but as many as receive him, to them he gave right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, not of human bloodlines, not of the will of the flesh, in terms of, of claiming that uh, lineage, nor of the will of man. You can't save yourself by your claim to a pure bloodline. But those who are born of God. So Jesus in chapter 3 meets this even with his own earthly family. And uh, that, that covenantal relationship with God supersedes natural family bonds and bloodlines. In chapter 4, as the gospel source being uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. That word Lord means master. He is mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of God in heaven. He's creator. He is uncreated God in his divine being. And so from this, as Jesus gives us these parables about uh, the mysteries of the kingdom of God, as the God-man, Jesus is equal to and entrusted with God's holy secrets about the kingdom. Have you ever heard the old expression, getting it from the horse's mouth? <laughs> that means original source, as it were. Jesus is the original source. He is the mediator who reveals to us he is entrusted with the mysteries of the kingdom of God and he gives them to us. We go to the original source about God's holy secrets. We, there's so much written and there's so much speculation and there, there's so much drama and uh, sensationalism about prophecy and this kind of stuff. But when you go to Jesus as the one entrusted with and the only mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, he tells us what the kingdom of, the, of God is and what it's about. And just in the chapter before, he completely obliterated the claim to pure bloodlines. That it's about a pure race or a pure delineation of people for a land and rebuilding a temple and reestablishing a means of worship that God says has been done with and to try to reestablish it is idolatry and an abomination and a tacit saying that what Jesus has done is not sufficient. When are we going to listen to what Scripture says and stop this foolishness that undermines the true gospel? Chapter 5, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this natural world and the other supernatural world. So in terms of his lordship, in terms of his being master, in terms of his being the God-man and, and equal with God as creator God, he is also the one who has power over this natural world and this supernatural world. Now, here's a question. This is a driving question. It's a question I hope that you can answer in faith 
but one that we must always keep before us. How is it that Jesus is more than a human being limited to the natural world and more than a spirit being from the supernatural world of angels and demons? How is it that Jesus is more than that? Can you answer that question? I mean, that's the, that's the, the uh, core of the gospel. What it, why is it good news? The good news is that God has made himself known to us and way of reconciliation with him of being restored and saved and receiving the promise of eternal life. All of that is revealed in the mystery and the wonder and the uniqueness one and only of Jesus, the God-man. How he is more than a human being limited to this natural world and he is more than a spirit being from the supernatural world. Jesus is not an angel or a demon. Jesus is the God-man. That has to ever be kept before us. Chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, the gospel conflict in this sin-fallen world is against unbelief, disbelief, false belief, and weak belief. But saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's why I I am so um, exercised to preach to you the authority of the Word of God and who Jesus Christ is in His gospel because we are in conflict with unbelief. But it doesn't stop there. There's unbelief. There's also disbelief. False belief and weak belief. The the disciples themselves were affected with these various various aspects of, of unbelief. We too are threatened and tempted with various aspects of unbelief. And we must have before us continually the reminder of saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. Chapter 6, the gospel conflict in this sinful world. I'm sorry, I already said that one. So the the question comes then, the follow-up question is, do you believe that Jesus is the God-man? Remember we said he's more than a man and he's not a spirit being. So the question is then, do you believe that Jesus is the God-man who is uniquely the perfect revealer of God the Father and do you trust in Him as God about things both seen and unseen? Isn't that where the, the real test, isn't that where the, the point, the intersection of our faith and living by faith in this world comes to? Do we believe God for things both seen and unseen? I don't really have a lot of challenge to my personal faith and belief to believe uh, to, to the fact that there are fallen spirits, that there are demons, that we are living in a world where there is a spiritual warfare, that there is another parallel world of, of supernatural reality that we have a few glimmers of given to us in Scripture. I, I believe that, even though I'm, I don't have a lot of information about it. When, I, when we read here in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus casting out demons and demons testifying to who He uh, is and that kind of thing, I, I believe that. I don't have a, it just doesn't unsettle me to believe those things. But you know where my faith is weak? What am I going to do tomorrow? Lord, I, I, see, what's, I see what's going on. I see trouble in my uh, community, in my world. I see trouble in my life. I see things that I can't fix. I see things that I'm living by faith and trusting you for. And then there are the unseen things I don't know about. What am I going to do? So, The idea that there are demons out there, 
That doesn't unsettle me. I believe there are. Give me the sword of the, the, the spirit and the shield of faith and let's go into the spiritual warfare. And, but ask me what I'm going to do tomorrow. Ask me how I'm going to get through with uncertainties. Ask me how I'm going to face <laughs> things that are outside of my control. And I'm like, what am I going to do, Lord? What am I going to do? Do I trust and believe the Lord Jesus for the things seen and unseen? Because he is Lord. I believe he is the God-man. Chapter 7, the gospel purifies from the corruption of external man-made religious traditions and self-righteous rules and rituals, clarifying the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. And so Jesus had this conflict with the Pharisees over self-righteous law works versus God's righteousness by grace faith. That is the conflict that continues at every level and in every generation. That conflict doesn't go away. Jesus gave us the answer for that. That answer was promised from before. We find it throughout in terms of God's promise and, and reflected in the meditations on the Psalms and other places in the Scriptures. Jesus brought it to its fullest light. The apostles after him further clarified and, and defended and contended for Salvation and righteousness by grace, faith, not by self-righteousness and law works. And so this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel we must hear over and over. There are many counterfeit gospels. There is an adulterated gospel of trying to add to. But this is the heart of the gospel. And it can only penetrate the sin-hardened heart. This scripture teaching that sin is sourced in the human heart and not in outward things, no matter how elaborately construed, is essential to the right synthesis and notable meaning of the gospel. And I chose those words purposely because this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Can you not synthesize? Can you not put together what I've taught you? Take note! This is notable! So... It is essential to the right synthesis and notable meaning of the gospel that grace, righteousness, salvation all comes by God's means of faith. In chapter 8, the gospel paradox, so that which seems to be a contradiction, but if we know the whole story, it's not a contradiction, but the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith in divine providence. This is what is paradoxical. We believe what we can't see, but we trust the invisible hand of God, that God is active in the world of His creation and that God is discreetly active in the, our life of faith. Back to what I was saying earlier about tomorrow. What am I going to do? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust in God's divine providence. I, I'm going to believe that what God has revealed about Himself for the seen things is true about the unseen things. It's integral to the salvation of the world that because I've been called into the kingdom of God out of darkness into light and I am a light bearer as a Christian, as one naming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I am a part of that integral purpose of God to save the world. And I'm connected to something far greater than just my individual existence or my individual experience. God is doing something and God has me connected why is it that Paul then raises that crescendo? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
And you go down that list in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, and it gets very intimate about the things that we face and suffer and the discomfort and the, the purifying of our faith. I've told you many, many times that to me the most frightful book in the Bible is the book of Job. What if God would test the weakness of my faith the way he tested Job? But then more importantly I realize Jesus answers Job's testing and temptation. God preserved uh, Job, no doubt about it. But, I mean, James says, remember the perseverance of Job. But, but the wonder to me, the wonder to me of the book of Job is that Jesus did what Job could not. And that Jesus did for Job what Job could not. <laughs> because Job's Redeemer lives. Jesus was Job's Redeemer. Jesus' Savior. Job's Redeemer. And your Redeemer and my Redeemer. And so the gospel paradox, I'm sorry, so the, the gospel paradox in the sin-fallen world demands faith and divine providence that we're a part of what God is doing to save the world. It demands faith and progressive revelation recorded in Holy Scripture. I search out the Scriptures. I'm not bound into one uh, passage or portion. The whole of the uh, counsel of God. And so I am intent on reading back into the Old Testament, who the Lord Jesus is. That's why I said Jesus was Job's Savior. I'm not going to doubt that God by the Holy Spirit revealed to Job that Jesus was his Savior. Jesus' Savior. No, Job never laid eyes on Jesus. To what degree Job even understood the incarnation, although it was hinted at, may not be as clear as you and I look back upon the incarnation. But I'll tell you another secret. I've never seen Jesus in my flesh, with my eyes. I've never seen Jesus, and I know you haven't either. But whom having not seen, what does Peter say? Whom having not seen, you love him. I love the Lord Jesus. Job loved the Lord Jesus. I love Savior. I love my Savior. Jesus is my Savior, even though I've never seen him. I believe in Progressive revelation of Scripture. The unfolding story of redemption. I believe in predictive prophecy terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel. That's a big help. Yes, there is predictive prophecy in Scripture. God is active in the world of His creation. He's active in it in terms of saving it. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so predictive prophecy finds its meaning terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel. If we do not interpret prophecy of scripture with the key of the new covenant gospel, we will be led astray. Now that new covenant gospel includes Jesus' return, but return in the ways he said and for the purpose that he reveals. And then the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith and promised gospel consummation to the glory of God. Things are going to end the way that God says they're going to end. They're not going to go out with a whimper. I'll stand before you and attest that God will not turn the world over to the world, the flesh, or the devil. People can poison their own world. Many people's world has come to an end. But the creation is not within the power of humans to destroy it. 
The creation is not within the power of the devil to destroy. The promised consummation will come for God's glory the way he says it will come. Jesus is the Savior of the world. So, the gospel paradox is also a personal paradox of saving faith. Do you believe this? What seems to be a contradiction of defeat to the unbelieving world is the greatest victory of eternal life over eternal death. This is the long view confirmed by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Beloved, we're part of the long view. And that is the victory of eternal life over eternal death. Well, that brings us then to chapter 9. That gets us caught up. We're going to continue in the exposition and we'll come to a fuller exposition uh, through the chapter 9. The New Covenant Christian Gospel is the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth. The supernatural power and presence of the triune God is personally knowable. Seriously, beloved, that ought to sit upon you like a weight of a treasure. If somebody came to you and gave you a treasure box full of gold and silver and precious jewels and all manner of unspeakably beautiful treasures, and they took this treasure box and just gave it to you, and you had to hold it, and it's like so heavy, it's like going to just take the breath out of you. You see, that's what... We should feel (laughs) intellectually, if not emotionally, but maybe both, when we we consider the transcendent and the imminent in God, personally knowable. So a quick review of chapter 9 that we'll be looking at, verses 1 through 8. The transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, dramatically displays the transcendent and the imminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God in heaven on earth. This is who it is. This is what the kingdom of God in heaven is about. Verses 9 through 13, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, gives a covenantal pledge previewing theological resurrection, listen, as more than someone returning from the dead. Do you grasp that? That with Jesus' resurrection, it's about something more than someone returning from the dead? The transfiguration gives us a pledge of that and a preview. In verses 14 through 29 of chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, revealing the transcendent and the imminent divine power in the kingdom of God in heaven, informs all confrontations with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now we've heard about that before coming up through these nine chapters up to chapter 9 about confrontation with the kingdom of God and the world. But here in chapter 9, following upon the transfiguration, we see that this confrontation with the world, the flesh, and the devil is informed in terms of past, present, and future. You ever ask yourself the question, why did things continue as they did after Jesus rose from the dead? We have an answer for that in terms of God's purpose. And we go back to being informed about these confrontations from who Jesus is 
and what the transfiguration confirms for us of the transcendent and the imminent divine power in the kingdom of God. And then verses 30 through 37 of Mark 9, by the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, the Christian gospel inverts and overpowers the world's power structures and struggles in terms of the kingdom of God and heaven. Now that's a real challenge to us. I believe there's great value as we come to the conclusion of chapter 9, building upon the previous chapters, to come to this point in terms of our faith and commitment to what the kingdom of God is and how the transfiguration of Jesus, who He is as the Christ, the Son of God, how that turns upside down and how it does spill over. It, it, it turns over the world's power structures and struggles. But it's a paradox because it's seen by faith and not in terms of the world. We must see it in terms of the kingdom of God and what God is doing. That turns us upside down. That turns us over. That what cannot be accomplished with flesh and power struggles and, and uh, worldly means, we have to constantly be reminded in faith of what God has promised that He is doing and that we receive by faith and that we believe and hold on to. And therefore, that's why we come together and worship. Publicly, collectively, sacramentally, we come together and worship as a testimony of faith and to the, the demonstration of the kingdom of God and what God is doing that the world not only doesn't understand and hates and tries to destroy, but cannot. And then the conclusion of Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, empowers Christian believers in the kingdom of God in heaven by supernatural transformation in Christ-likeness as living sacrifices, having gospel peace. Isn't it wonderful how we come through this uh, powerful chapter? I mean, coming up to it, I think it was powerful. Now coming to chapter 9 and starting out with a transfiguration and, and just being overwhelmed in the wonder of the transfiguration, but then coming through that to the conclusion of where Jesus says we're to be salt like in a sacrifice. The salt reference that Jesus makes at the end of chapter 9 is about the salting of a sacrifice. And about having not lost the sauciness or, or the, the saltiness or the, the seasoning. And then he, he connects that with something that we don't get. Because when we think about sacrifice and we think about salt, we, we think about pain and suffering. But what does Jesus equate it with? Peace. Go back and read it. That's why I read verses 49 and 50. After verses 1 and 2 about the transfiguration... Coming to verses 49 and 50, the conclusion of chapter 9, when Jesus talks about a living sacrifice and a paradox of peace with God. So I hope that this overview and this review gets us back into excitement about the gospel of Mark and straight talk about who Jesus Christ is and the gospel, the coming of the kingdom. And as we come to really about the climatic, to one of the greatest climaxes in the, the Gospel of Mark, halfway through is the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. And I want to go back to the horse's mouth. <laughs> I want to go back to an original source. Peter was there. And Peter wrote us some thoughts about that in 2 Peter 
For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. These are not fantasy stories. When we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the uh, unique Son of God, He who is transfigured as Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, the Savior. This is not some made-up, fanciful, fantasy story. These are not myths of man-made imagination. We made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses, original source, eyewitnesses of His majesty at the transfiguration. For He received from God the Father honor and glory, When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is who we preach by the new covenant gospel of the kingdom of God. So we will return to a fuller exposition of chapter 9 in the coming weeks. I hope that you will follow along from the handout and I hope that you will be reading. I would ask you to read the Gospel of Mark um, each week, 16 chapters. You could read the Gospel of Mark every week before you come into public worship. Because it's valuable to see, and that's what I tried to do this morning, to give you an overview and a connection. This is not an isolated text, not an isolated event. Mark's been writing about this, weaving this together, directed by the Holy Spirit, giving us original source of the straight talk about who Jesus Christ is in his gospel and the kingdom of God in this world. Our concluding or parting hymn this morning is hymn number 100.